Yacht A, my relatives, good morning. This is Mark Charles, and it is uh, Tuesday, February 28th, the final day of February, believe it or not. I have no idea where this month went. But I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee, and I am very excited today to introduce you to a very good friend of mine. His name is Matt Michelados, um, and I'll bring him on the screen in just a few moments. But uh, I've known Matt for a number of years, have worked with him in a variety of contexts, and I'm excited to introduce you to him. But uh, before I begin, I want to do as I always do, which is acknowledge I'm speaking to you from Piscataway lands. The area where I live is now called Washington, D.C., but uh, the Piscataway are the original inhabitants of these lands, and I want to honor them as the hosts of these lands. I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of the lands, and I want to just state how humble I am to be living on these lands today. So it's good to have you here. There's obviously a lot going on at the end of the month. There's a massive blizzard going across the country. I have family living in California, and they're actually dealing with about five feet of snow already, and they're expecting another foot or two even in the next 24 hours. And so there's a lot going on across the country. Um, I have some travel coming up this week. I'm headed to Rhode Island tomorrow and then to Chicago on Friday, and I'm very excited about both of those trips. I'm doing a book event on uh, in Rhode Island, and I'm speaking at a human rights conference uh, at the Northwestern University just outside of Chicago, and I'm really looking forward to that. But uh, today, I want to introduce you to Matt Michelotto. So Matt, um, he is an author. He's a screenwriter. He is uh, someone who is deeply invested in um, building relationship and even advancing um, issues around uh, uh, um, social civil rights and just working with people of color and communities of color. I first met Matt when um, he was working with Crew, which used to be called Campus Crusade, and uh, he is now working as a screenwriter. And he has his wife and three kids and a large rabbit named Bruce. So let me bring Matt on and I'll introduce you to him. So Matt, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Glad to be with you. So um, as you know, this is my second cup of coffee, but Matt is not a coffee drinker. Matt no. drinks water. So I, uh, he's I brought my water though. Here it is. <laughs> Look, it's almost gone, but it's here. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so Matt, Matt is a really great guy. I, I can't even know where to begin. Um, like I said earlier, I first met Matt when I was doing some work, actually kind of a consultation with crew and some mutual friends, some good friends of mine and good, good friends of Matt, um, Donnie and Renee Begay, who started the Nations Movement within Campus Crusade. And they had brought a team of kind of national leaders from Crusade out to the reservation and they asked me to speak to them. Matt was a part of that group. And then um, I, don't, I don't know how we kept in touch after that, but then a few, a year, a few years later, I think Matt was working with some other people to bring me on as a speaker at one of the, um, one of their uh, main conferences that they have for staff development. And so I got to know Matt, not just through those interactions, but through others. And he was working very hard within this large white evangelical organization that, again, it was called Campus Crusade. So you even understand some of the roots that it, this institution was rooted in. Um, and, but he was working very hard to advance the, the, the voice 
and the position of people of color within within the administration or within the institution. I really appreciated that. So, Matt, thank you for joining me. Oh man, my pleasure. I uh, I was just thinking yesterday. Do you remember when uh, you were doing "Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread" in Washington? And I drove yeah. my parents' truck out, and we were like getting all the stuff ready for. We were like gathering all the salmon and everything. For, it was super fun. Yeah, we were. That was in the Yakima, down in the Yakima Reservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was I amazing. remember that. So, Matt, I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about. Yesterday, as we were kind of prepping for this uh, for this conversation, we I we probably should have recorded that conversation because it was a really fun dialogue just to have. But um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience working within this very white evangelical organization that you know has some great people working for some really good causes for sure but you have an institution that is so steeped in this colonial mindset that there's a lot of roadblocks regardless of the relationships that you have to you have to not only encounter but overcome what what was your experience like working there I mean, there's so many things that were really, really positive, really excellent about working there and dear, dear friends of mine who are in leadership. Um, I, uh, I, oh boy, I think I came in with some advantages, right? Like, well, not I had came in with some advantages as a white guy, you know, large evangelical organization, and I'm a large white person. So there's, you know, a match there. Um, but also I grew up in California. So my experience of interaction with people of multiple races was really different than some of the other folks and crew. My college was 8% Caucasian. Uh, so I had a lot of friends who are people of color from a pretty young age. Um, so when I joined crew, which is not only white people, but it is majority white, there were a lot of cultural things that even for me as someone from the West Coast, uh, that at times I found really challenging, confusing, strange. Uh, I went through serious culture shock, actually. Um, and what 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 I will say to the benefit of crew and their leadership is the reason I was allowed to do many of the things that I did get to do uh, and platform different people of color and be part of these big conferences was because the leadership was inviting me to. They were making space for that and allowing me to make space for others. So those pieces of it were really amazing and excellent. I think what we kept running into over and over is that it wasn't just a matter of intention. Everyone had good intentions. Everyone wanted to do good things. Um, it was a matter of a needed cultural shift in the organization. And that's much, much more difficult. Just had people entrenched in the culture of the way the organization was now. And also, when you start pushing for big cultural change, it started hitting up against some financial issues, uh, meaning, was this really worth, uh, you'd have people saying, we really want to make this change. And you say, okay, it's only going to cost X number of dollars for us to move that direction. You start getting nervous. Uh, or donors, donors who didn't understand what we were trying to do coming in and saying, yeah, I'm going to pull my money. And yeah. then, you know. That was a that was a decision leadership had to make of whether to stand up to that or not. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And, you know, I'm not in the room when they make those decisions. So I don't even know. Maybe sometimes they're making the right call. And that that not only the cultural shift, but the funding challenges that that creates. I remember I was Huge. at the conference when 
Campus Crusade changed their name to Crew. Oh, no. Yeah, that's a I great was, example. I was mm-hmm. sitting next to Mark Gauthier, right, who is yeah. leading the student branch of the ministry. And like his, you know, the, the messages that he's getting and the things are doing of people who are just livid that they're taking the name Crusade, <laughs> Campus Crusade, right. out of the name and using something right. much less colonial. Well, and what's okay. So I was on the, I was on the team that was making that decision. Well, I didn't help make the decision. I helped make recommendations for that decision. Uh, And so we spent literally over a year on this, right? And we, experts are coming in, they're doing all this research. So it wasn't just the crusade piece. So that was a piece that was really important. It was also the campus piece because crew does things in all these other parts of life. So you'd have someone who, you know, you come to them about a business ministry and they're like, but I'm not on a campus, right? Like, so they were like, we need to change this name for multiple reasons. And they decide on crew because a lot of students already called it crew was, was part of it. Yeah. So we, we were in that space. Um, and so this is really fun. I mean, I don't think this will surprise you, Mark. So our president gets up and says, we're changing the name. Uh, or it was our U.S. president, actually. We're changing the name to crew in the US and Fox news picked it up and said, campus crusade is uh, bowing to politically correct pressure and changing their name because they're taking Christ out of their name, which Fox news doesn't care. Right. But they were like, they're taking Christ out of the name. They're not even Christians anymore. Right. And so of course, all these people who hadn't knew nothing about the context of why we're changing our name, literally changing the name, so we could do better at evangelism and reach more people. Yeah. Like that's all that our leaders had ever said in any of the meetings I was in. I was with the top people. Um, so we start getting all these calls. Oh, you guys hate Jesus now. So I was put in charge of talking to some of the people calling in because I'd been in all the meetings. And I was talking to this one woman, a uh, sweet older lady, well, older lady who I'm sure was sweet in other contexts. And she was saying to me, uh, you're bowing to political pressure. You don't love Jesus. I'm explaining everything to her. She's like, nope, Fox News said it's because you want to be politically correct. And I said, ma'am, I've been in every single one of these meetings. I've never heard anyone say that. And she's like, so you think you know better than Fox News? And I was like, <laughs> I, yes. I mean, clearly, yes. I was My five-year-old child knows better than Fox News. I don't understand. Anyway, yeah. But I mean... I think, and that was that was someone who had been donating finances to Crew, was on board with what Crew was trying to do for years. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's the uh, that's the kind of thing, and that's not even when we start getting into issues like um, women in ministry or people of color or like all these things. That was just changing yeah. the name of the organization, which had been yeah. its name since nineteen the nineteen fifties. So that's part of that's the cultural thing, right? That, yeah, I mean, there's so much, I mean, we could probably go on for a long time about this. And I, I want to acknowledge people who are on the call, are on the stream with us, Theo, or Theo, thank you for joining. Uh, Diana Barnes, thank you for joining. Mr. Phil Fox, it's great to see you here. I'm so glad to have people joining us for this conversation. This is my friend, Matt Michelados. Hi. We're talking about his past work with uh, Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, and kind of the transition and the challenges that went along with that. Now, when I first met you, right, Donnie and Renee were trying to really introduce Native culture 
yeah. and the contextualization of, of ministry for Native communities into that. What, from your experience on the other end, right, Don, you and A were, were trying to bring this change in. And from your experience of working more with the institution, how, how, did you, how did you experience that? And what was that like for you? And how did you see that both help and challenge the organization? I, I think, you know, it's a really important point. People like Donnie and Renee and a whole bunch of other people were doing this work a long time before I stepped in. Um, but as a white guy, I was given access to some things in leadership that not everyone else was. Um, now, uh, now, Donnie and Renee have led at the absolute highest parts of the organization. So I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there were plenty of people before I came that were pushing crew to grow in some of these things. Um, and crew let us do some amazing things. Like uh, one year, we did have land acknowledgement at the beginning of our giant staff meeting and some elders from the local tribe came and we exchanged gifts and they spoke and prayed for us and welcomed us to the land. And we had never done that before, you know, in, in over 50 years. It was beautiful. It was amazing. A really good experience for, for most everyone, I think. Um, so there, there were these things that were really good. And then at the same time, that there's just so many examples. So for instance, our summer missions trips were called summer projects, uh, which you would think, oh, no problem with that, right? But some of our black staff and, um, and students were saying, gosh, when you say projects, I think of something very specific, right? It doesn't, you're thinking of project like something we work on. I think of project like somewhere you live. Yeah. Uh, or we had a, uh, one of our goals was making Christ-centered laborers. And some of our Latino and uh, and Hispanic staff were saying, you know, that in our community, we're not trying to become laborers. Most of, you know, so many of us are laborers already. We want to be Christ-centered leaders. So even just like little things like that, we were consistently, our audience was always the majority. So what we we're trying to do, Donnie and Renee and others, myself, is push us toward what if our audience was actually all the people we're saying we're trying to interact with instead of just the majority, uh, which requires a lot of communication, a lot of relationship, a lot of transformation. And that was consistently, uh, you know, it's just difficult for everyone. Yeah. In fact, Mark, you were, I was growing a lot as I was going through this process too. And I remember in 2015, we did our first big, like, we're going to change everything in the way we do this conference. We brought in a lot of people of color to speak. We talked about some topics that had been difficult to address before that. And I was getting so much negative pushback from some of the some of our white staff in particular who were really struggling with some of the changes. Because what was happening, right, as we said, uh, we're going to get a band in that doesn't just speak to the majority, but speaks to some of the individuals in the audience. So maybe it was a more... Uh, African-American style band, let's say. Um, so then some folks that that's not their background was like, oh, I don't love the music. And it was like, oh, right. Just like all our black staff didn't love the music two years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was getting frustrated by all the people who were giving pushback, just really upset. And I remember I called you and we talked and you said something so wise to me that just I I've always thought about it after that. You said, uh, Matt, you need to understand that as some of these folks are being introduced to things that they don't know, like this new cultural thing as they're understanding their place and understanding whiteness, like all these things, that they go through trauma. And how do you treat people who are in trauma? And you started laying it out for me, like, right, you're patient with them. 
you repeat yourself, you do all these different things to help people in trauma. And it just, it helped me reframe what, how I was interacting with some of the white yeah. staff and be more patient and help them grow instead of just getting angry and dismissing them, yeah. which, you know, a lot of people of color learn this so young uh, and I needed your guidance to grow in that and to, and to move through that. Well, that's that. I, thank you for sharing that. That's really good to hear. I mean, that the culture shift that you're you're talking about. I mean, I was on the board with of CCDA with Richard Twist, mm -hmm. right? And yep. CCDA started by an African American man, John Perkins, has this national even global reach. Invested deeply in communities of color all around the country. And they have three R's, right? The three core components of what they see CCDA is, and one of those R's is restoration or not is relocation right to relocate people back into these urban centers yeah and richard and i and actually richard led this charge more than i did he's like you can't use relocation with native peoples right right, right? we Absolutely. cannot give ourselves to an organization that's invested in relocation mm -hmm. because we have an entirely different relationship with that word based on what the church did to us throughout our context. And those yeah. are some of the things are like, those are some of the cultural changes where for people who didn't experience or understand that history, it's going to feel like you're nitpicking, but right. you're saying, yeah, my community cannot embrace your core values when yeah. you use these words that are really um, problematic for our own experience. So what you're well, talking about is very clear. And I think what's hard for folks from majority culture, any kind of majority culture to understand is that folks from a minority culture become fluent in majority culture. They have to for survival. Yeah. And majority culture has no expectation that they have become fluent in minority culture. Yeah. So the misunderstandings mostly go one way. Uh, it's not like minority people are like, oh, I didn't know what that white guy meant when he said that. Right. <laughs> like they have it figured out. Yeah. Um, so I think that just that piece that educational piece too of like, maybe you don't understand minority cultures as well as you think you do for majority folks can be really upsetting. Cause they're like, gosh, I feel like I've always been understood. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Why, why are you not understanding? Yeah. I, we could go on about this for a while, but I want to move on to a few other topics. Okay. One of the things I'm, I'm kind of teasing out because I'm going to be doing this in the next year which is I, I spent, you know, uh, maybe two years ago, um, uh, Christianity Today came out with a podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And I yeah. listened to the podcast twice. I, it, was, it ran for like a year, maybe a year and a half. I listened to every episode two times. And I really began thinking about kind of that podcast, which, you know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill was a very white <laughs> Christian right. evangelical, yeah. you know, yes. I mean, it was, it was complete. It was whiteness at its, at its, almost at its core. And it was being critiqued by more white people. And because of the, they was like, it was, it was almost like navel gazing. There was a lot of things I think that were missed in the critique of, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, because it was mm -hmm. done by people who were actually, in the system, not that they can't offer right. perspective, but right. certainly their their perspective and their limit and their, their understanding is limited because they were a part of the system um, and didn't see it as much from the outside. Right. Um, again, so I, I'm going to be bringing on some people of color to kind of talk about this, but you experienced Mars Hill from a different 
way because you were living in the area, right? And right, you, yeah. it was a different thing. I mean, any thoughts you have on that? And I, you, we talked uh, about this yesterday. You didn't even listen to the podcast because you said, I knew I saw what was going on. No, I found that I started listening to the podcast. and I was like, I can't do this, man. Like I lived through this. I don't need to listen to this. Um, so my wife and I lived in Seattle when Mark was first planning his church. And that was kind of, uh, it was like, oh, this guy that young people like is meeting. And I can't remember where they were meeting some, some little space somewhere. Uh, and then it was growing and growing. And then Don Miller's book came out, uh, Blue Like Jazz, and talked about the cussing pastor. That was Mark. Uh, which you're like, oh, that's a weird, okay. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what he was known for. Straight talk, which means I'm going to say whatever I want. Um, but as it continued to grow, we had friends that were in that community and saw some really concerning things. And then my wife and I were at seminary and Mark was sort of going there also, uh, by which I mean, he'd come have one-on-ones, like special yeah. classes with the teachers. And, and by Mark, you mean Mark Driscoll? Mark Driscoll, not Mark Charles. I didn't know Mark Charles yet at this point. I'm sure he would have helped me deal with things, if so. Um, I'll just say Driscoll from here on in. I think what was clear about Driscoll, if you knew him at all, if you had any like firsthand conversations in this area, was that there were people who not only saw dangerous signs, but had been abused by him early, early on. Uh, and on the other hand, you had people saying all these good things, which is kind of where the Mars Hill podcast kept going, right? Um, like, oh, but the Lord was doing amazing things. I felt like pretty early on, it was clear that Mark was manipulating people, that the way he was speaking was disrespectful to human beings, yeah. um, that he was very focused on himself in a variety of ways. So it was very frustrating when something like the Mars Hill podcast comes out a decade later after everything's fallen apart and says like, hey guys, this weird thing happened. We don't understand what happened. And so many people in the Portland and Seattle area are saying, yeah, we were telling you guys for years and years, stop inviting this guy to things, stop platforming him. He's toxic, there's problems. Um, so yeah, I think Mark, what's interesting about that podcast, like you said, it was some folks who were at one point platforming Mark Driscoll, now saying like, gosh, Driscoll was problematic. huh?" Who knew? Who knew? And yeah. everyone, a bunch of people who knew were like, yeah, we knew. Um, and then they never, so far as I know, on the podcast, kind of turned the mirror toward themselves. They were like, look yeah. at Driscoll. Look at all this weird stuff. They never learned, looked at themselves and said, how were we complicit in this? Which yeah. I think is the real question that we need to address because there are still people exactly like Mark Driscoll in the evangelical subculture and being platformed as celebrity Christians who are doing the exact same harm and it's going to come out in the near future. And then we're going to get another podcast saying, how could this happen? What, what was the Lord up to and not what were we up to? Why did we allow this? Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. What I found so fascinating was literally in the middle of the podcast. Yeah. Christian today had its own sexual scandal. Yep. Which came out publicly. Yep. And they did an episode on it. I think they had to do it to maintain any shred of integrity. <laughs> they did an episode on it, but they were nowhere nearly as direct and as hard on what was going on, or as even I would say transparent as what was going on within their organization as they were about what was going on at Mars Hill. I found that very right. interesting. Um, anyway, yeah. that uh, so there's a lot. <laughs> again, this is a conversation I'm going to kind of extend Ugh. out over the next year. 
Yeah. But I appreciate you offering some perspective there. I think the, um, uh, oh boy, Mark, we could go so many ways with this, but I think one of the frustrating things about one, one very small frustrating thing about sexual abuse in evangelicalism is that it is so wrapped up in the, uh, in the patriarchal cultural piece of evangelicalism specifically. It's true in other parts of Christianity too, but evangelicalism specifically is very patriarchal, which means that as we go after sex abuse issues, we bump up against patriarchal things, which the, and then the patriarchy must be defended because it's not seen as a cultural value. It's seen as a, a scriptural value, which it isn't, but that's how it's seen within the culture, um, which then means, oh man, I guess we kind of have to protect the sexual predator or protect the culture that allows sexual predators to have access, yeah. which is, I mean, I've got a bunch of stories from my years in ministry uh, related to that, but yeah, um, yeah that, it's so frustrating. There's a whole, we could easily spend hours discussing that. And maybe I, we need to talk more about that because I think what you're saying is absolutely true. I like the way that you phrased it, which is because the, the cultural context of the scriptures is so patriarchal, Right. There is a need for the, the, that faith, for the Christian faith, for the church to protect our need. There is, a, there is a tendency for the church to protect that. And what that only does is you're right. It does protect the sexual. I mean, we saw this with Pope Francis, right? When, right. when, when he was addressing the sexual abuse by priests that was coming to light 40 years later during his watch, during the Me Too movement. And he responded by saying, well, we're not going to hold the priest from 40 years ago accountable to the same standards of the Me Too movement of today. And right, you hear him saying, like, what the crap does that mean? <laughs> right. right. The Pope I mean, is like, there's moral relativism <laughs> involved here. What? Francis, I mean, that's what? the same thing he said about Native peoples. He said to our Congress, we're not going to hold you accountable for what you did to Native peoples. We're not, it's difficult to judge the past by the criteria of the present. He made the exact same argument with Native peoples, which is why <laughs> I picked it up when he used it for sexual predators in the church. Oh, no. But yeah, yeah there, there is, and we could go off on that, but I, <sighs> I appreciate you sharing a few thoughts on that. And that, that was good to, good to touch on. Um, anything you want to end on that? Say with it, about that before I move on to something else? Um, yeah, you know, I would just say that the patriarchy we see in the Bible is a different sort than what we have now. We've adopted some of the shape of patriarchy without any of the uh, family structure that was used in scripture to counterbalance the issues in patriarchy. Um, what we have done is empowered fathers specifically and men in general with all the power and removed all of the checks and balances uh, so that men have access and freedom to do things that uh, introduces danger to everyone else in the community. Uh, and, and we've not done a good job of, of repairing that. And I, th I think we're in the midst of a reckoning about it, I hope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's still going on all over the place. Anyway, all that to say, I think there's a way to healthily talk about... Um, Oh gosh, never mind. I, I, I'm about to get onto it. So, you're hitting my buttons, Mark. 
I, I appreciate, I love conversation with you, Matt. I remember when we were together in Portland a few months ago. We just sat there and talked for hours. You drank your water and I drank my coffee and um, <laughs> we just had a really good conversation. Um, yeah, let's, let's move on. There's, I mean, I want to talk and share some about what you're doing today because you've made a, a massive transition, right? I yeah. remember a few years ago, you, you messaged out to some people around you that you are now um, completely off staff with, with crew and you are going to begin doing screenwriting and yeah. kind of more contract work um, in the literary field. Yes. And I saw that and I almost I just cheered quietly from the background because I'm like, <laughs> I, I love I love people who kind of disengage from from these large institutions to say, I want to do this on a much more just an individual level and work on these more project based things. And I was really excited to see you do that. But how's that transition been? Like, what has it been the stuff you've been working on? Oh, man, it's been amazing. Um, the transition overall was really good. I think. We are at a place, my wife and I, in crew, where we realized what we were called to in the future direction of the organization was not going to quickly get to where we thought the organization should go. And we needed to make that choice of like, do you stick around and be bitter and angry about it? Or do you let them go do what the leadership feels called to do and just go your separate ways, right? So we just felt like we don't want to spend the next 10 years fighting about this and feeling upset that nothing's changing. Um, so I've been writing professionally already for a number of years. Um, I reached out to one of my producer friends, uh, and said, Hey, I'm thinking about going to Hollywood. And he was like, Oh, you don't just call your producer friends and say, I think I'm going to Hollywood. And I was like, right. I was just kind of letting you know. And then like, uh, and then like three or four weeks later, he called me yeah. and he goes, I'm a little embarrassed, uh, but I have a job. I think you'd be great for and uh, yeah, it turned out I, I have some experience overseas and obviously had been a missionary for a number of years. And he was like, we're doing this script about a missionary overseas and we're hiring these people who don't seem to understand that life. Like, do you want to try out for it? Which I did. So that was my first paying job was writing this movie for this organization. And then I ended up writing for a TV show called Going Home, which second season's filming right now. Uh, I wrote a movie called Legacy Peak that got made. Uh, and yeah, right now, uh, I, oh, this is funny too. So my friend called me and was like, hey, I've got a screenwriting group for people who are uh, novelists trying to break into Hollywood. Do you want to join? I was like, yeah, absolutely. He said, but every single person in it is an atheist except for you. And I was like, great. <laughs> so I, this is my friend, Jake Kerr. So I got, I got there and Jake starts out the conversation. He's like, this is Matt. He's a Christian. And I was like, Jake, why? <laughs> oh why are you doing this to me? But yeah, so I got uh, I got uh, teased a little bit on the front end, but they've all become really good friends. And one of those guys is a guy named Hugh Howie, who wrote a book called Wool. And Hugh and I have become writing partners, and we sold a TV show to AMC. It's a science fiction show, okay. which uh, pre it's in kind of like, it's in development right now. So we'll see yeah. if it ever makes it to air, but... Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff I've been working on and still doing books and uh, things like that as well, sort of on the side. Anything out there we could watch, we could stream that what, that we might be able to find somewhere? Well, um, yes. <laughs> there is a, uh, there's a streaming channel called PureFlix that okay. was bought by Sony, and they were trying to bring in some um, higher quality content, which is how my friends got hired, which is how I got hired. 
Um, so if you do, you can do like a seven day trial to Pure Flix and you can see our show Legacy Peak, which is my movie or the show Going Home. Uh, understanding that both of these are things targeting sort of your um, your Christian community. Um, so I don't think you find anything offensive outside of it, but just yeah. understanding that's the audience. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then hopefully on AMC eventually we'll have something. And then I saw my daughter Allie is on on the call somewhere. She and I pitched a show to Disney that's, uh, that's still being considered over there. So we'll see if that ever happens. Okay. But uh, yeah, so hopefully we'll have some more mainstream availability well, in the near future. Well, I, you this and this writing is nothing new. You've been writing books for a right. long time. You yeah. have the, the the series you've written kind of almost a little model after the Narnia series, a kind mm -hmm. of a, 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 I don't know how you would describe the series. My daughter loves your books, by the way. Yeah. Um, but uh, and you you were writing a blog kind of. I don't know if examining is the right word. You were kind of commenting on the writing of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a website called Tor.com, which is kind of a big science fiction and fantasy website. They're a publisher. I'm going to uh, share that in the in the chat here so people okay, can cool. see it. Yeah. I was working with Tor and uh, I had asked them, would you be interested in a, a reread, which is like you read all the works of somebody of C.S. Lewis? Because I said, you know, I'm Christian. Uh, but I last read these most of these books when I was a kid, and some things have changed for me. I think it'd be interesting as an adult to reflect back, and then also for a lot of people in the tour audience who aren't Christian, I think I could pull out some of the things that are happening in the book that they don't even understand is happening. They're like, we love that. Let's. I, I initially said, Let, let's do two or three posts, and they said, what if we did every science fiction or fantasy book the guy wrote? And I was like, that's a lot. And they're like, yeah. So I, I worked for them for two years, basically doing those posts. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So now in this, and this is, I, I did not read the entire series, um, but I did, there was one you posted. It was a few, I forget, you you shared on your social media. And um, so I'm going to, I'm going to share the great reread. I shared the article I'm going to comment on right now, but this one right here is called, it's the great CS Lewis reread. Yep. And let me just share that really quick. Um, okay, there it is. Anyway, for people who follow the, the Narnia series, um, there is a problematic point in the Narnia series where uh, kind of the end scene are near the end of, this, of the whole series and there's this like coming to heaven imagery. Yeah. And Susan one of the children gets left out. Right. And um, spoilers for a 1950. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't read the book yet. Yeah. It's been out for decades or maybe longer. So yeah, if you, it's, this is actually going to spoil it, but Susan, one of the original four kids who goes to Narnia gets left out because she's basically become almost an adult, right? She's concerned right. with, with her, her, her beauty. She's concerned with things of life and she's mm -hmm. left these childish things behind. And she gets left out and almost is kind of dropped from mm -hmm. like it's never really dealt with. Mm -hmm. And when you in your great reread, you actually address this. It's called it's called the problems of Susan. And your first line in this is C.S. Lewis failed. Mm -hmm. He failed to clearly say what he was trying to say. He failed his readers and he failed Susan. And you go through in the <laughs> yeah. article. 
and you you critique C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. and then you rewrite the end of the book. Yeah, nobody tell the C.S. Lewis Foundation, but yes, you do it <laughs> masterfully. Thank you. I mean, you. it's I, I read it, and like so many people who commented on on your blog, I was choked up. Hmm. almost in tears by the way you dealt so not only so well with the problems of Susan, but the way you did it in the voice of C.S. Lewis. I I mean, and as you know, like uh, my last book, we critiqued Augustine. You spent a lot of time critiquing. These are, there's a few pillars of the Christian culture world. You don't critique or rewrite. Augustine's one of them. C.S. Lewis is another one of them. Like, so what was that like? What kind of feedback did you get from that? Yeah. So at this point, a lot of my audience knew that I deeply love C.S. Lewis, right? And had been trying to be upfront about the really beautiful, wonderful things in his work. Like he talks about spiritual abuse so clearly in the book, The Silver Chair, in a way that I don't see people doing today. Um, So there are things like that, right? That are just amazing. Um. So I would say my audience on the front end was pretty forgiving of anything they were upset about. But that first sentence uh, about C.S. Lewis failing, that was a rough one for some folks. They were like, how dare you? He He's obviously better than you. How dare you say he failed? I was like, you know what? People better than me fail all the time. It's normal. And uh, I'm very sensitive to it as someone who's yeah. not as good as them. Like, I like to see them fail, so I notice it. Um, anyway, all that to say... Uh, the, the problem, right, is the C.S. Lewis with Susan. What most people read in that story is not what Lewis intended. And we can see that in his letters. Uh, so in his letters, people say like, well, how dare you say Susan's not going to make it to Aslan or not to Narnia? And he's like, oh, no, that's not what I was saying. Um, I was just saying her road might be longer. She's still growing, like these sorts of things. But that's not what comes across in the book. In the book, it sounds like she likes wearing, you know, nylons and therefore can't go to heaven. Um, And and I think it was just Lewis had a lot of blind spots as far as women go. And I think this was one that it was just it 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 wrecked something he was trying to do. Um, So what I thought was like, let's write something that gets us more to the heart of the way Lewis told us Narnia is and who Aslan is. And who Lucy is, who's this, Lucy is, you know, Susan's little sister, who's this constantly kind-hearted, compassionate person. And when they're like, oh, Susan didn't make it, she's like, eh, in the books, like she doesn't say anything. Um, <laughs> while everyone else is saying like, well, she always was a little, you know, I wasn't sure. Um, and Lucy says nothing. So I was like, that can't be right. Lucy wouldn't say anything. So that's why I tried to take what Lewis had already told us about Aslan, about Lucy, about Susan and make that part of the story. So there were a few people that were like, I can't believe you're doing this. But what I got a lot more of was people saying, uh, I printed that little section you wrote out and I've put it in my book. And like, when I read it to my kids, I'm gonna include that piece, like things like that, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, Cause it bothered me as a kid, like really bothered me. Um, And in the same book, right? In the same book, there's this moment where someone who is never a follower of Aslan, he was following Tash, which is like the demon god, um, gets in to heaven, right? Because 
Aslan says, all the good things you did for Tash, you are actually doing for me, just like all the evil things someone does for Aslan, they're actually doing for Tash. So you've been following me without knowing. So come in. And you're like, Susan doesn't get in, but that guy does? <laughs> right? So you know, it, it's it's just because Lewis wasn't saying saying it in a way that was easily understandable. So it was a, it was a correction more than a, well, it's still a critique, I guess, too. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm glad it resonated with so many people. Uh, I, I did. A lot of people- I I read through the comments of that section and there was a lot of people who felt really appreciative. I know for what you wrote there. And I, I thought it was a very, very well done piece. Thank you. Um, I'm going to share your website here. So people cool. who want to follow you and learn more about the stuff you're writing, uh, they can do that. So here is um, Matt Michelotto's website. You can get access to his books there, learn about the other projects he's working on. Um, he is, uh, he acknowledges he needs to update his website. It's a little bit um, uh, early 2000s or late 1990s. But, I um, this. <laughs> but there is a website out there where you can learn more about what Matt's doing. And of course, um, if you read his bio, one of the things he says in his bio is that he is um, a husband and the father of three, and he also has a giant bunny. And yeah. so I have to at least show you a picture there he is. of Bruce. Um, and this is Matt. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Bruce. Yeah, sure. Bruce, uh, you know, during COVID, all our family was home and uh, our our family was struggling a little bit. You know, all the normal things you do to decompress and deal with stress. We couldn't no one could go play tennis or go to dance or whatever. We're trying to find a way to re. <laughs> oh no, Allie, if you're still on the call and about to tell a story about you, I hope it's okay. <laughs> um, my daughter Allie has wanted a rabbit since she was a tiny child. And we always were like, no. But my wife and I were talking and we we're like, what if we got a rabbit? It would kind of like move everyone's attention towards something else. So we call the kids in and we said, hey, we've been talking. <laughs> Allie says, yikes, it's fine though, lol. Um, <laughs> We call the kids in and say, we're going to, we're going to let you guys get a rabbit. And Allie bursts into tears and is like, why are you guys so mean? And we're like, what What are you talking about? So mean. We just said you can have a rabbit. She's like, why are you teasing me about this? You know, I've wanted a rabbit since I was a child. Um, But we're like, no, we're serious. Um, Anyway, we start like looking at rabbits on uh, Craigslist, actually. And the rabbit- I thought you were going to say she was afraid you were going to eat the rabbit. No, so. no, 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 no. No, we don't even joke about that in our family. Everyone's so protective of the rabbit. <laughs> okay, I, I but, won't bring that in. I come from the, the reservation. We have a very right, different language of the rabbits there, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, rabbits, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I can't <laughs> say that rabbits are good, but. um, So longer story, but here's the short version. There was, this is really terrible, actually. The guy who previously owned our rabbit passed away from COVID. And this rabbit was his favorite thing. And so he made his daughter and his granddaughter promise to take care of this rabbit. And so they put the rabbit on Craigslist, but were terrified that someone was going to buy it and eat it. So they made us go through this whole interview process to get this rabbit like multiple phone calls. And then we had to meet him in person and they wanted to check us out. Allie went with me and we got the rabbit and brought him home. And he's just been delightful though. He's three years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he lives outside in a hutch. He comes when you call him because he's very food motivated. So you're like, hey, Bruce. And he'll run over and be like, yes. Um, he comes in every night and he lays on the floor and like watches TV with us. Oh, wow. Or he, like, 
gets pets and whatever. And then he's like, okay, time for bed. And he goes off to his hutch again. So it's like, think of a vegetarian cat, only friendlier probably. Now, how long does a rabbit live? Uh, Depends on the breed, but Bruce is a three-year-old is probably about 40 in human years, something like that. Okay. Like he'll, he'll live to be six or eight years old probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we had a cat and a dog. They both died during COVID and we got two new cats. Our kids all wanted new cats. They wanted another pet. And our, you know, our, our youngest daughter is in the eighth grade and cats live, you know, 15 to 20 years. Right. Right. And so we're like, we're like, okay, we can get a cat, but right, you guys are gone in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. keep the cat. Right? I mean, this is this is a commitment for somebody, and mom yeah. and I aren't thrilled about taking making a twenty year commitment to a cat. You know, you know yeah. what? We, and so we agreed to get a cat, but we said, and I said, we'll give you, we'll give you eight years, ten years. We'll give you ten years. Mm-hmm. You can, Get out of high school. All of you can graduate college. We'll even give you two years, our youngest, to get established in your career. And then we're <laughs> going to have a family meeting. And About we're going to decide who <laughs> takes the cat. So in our family calendar on Google, oh, in no. 10 years, we have a meeting planned <laughs> to decide what to do with our cat. Who's going to take the cat? Because it's Hilarious. not a foregone conclusion. Mom and dad are going to keep oh, it. Oh, man. So. Yeah, uh, we've had a number of cats, but we have a lot of coyotes in our neighborhood. So it's always like this really sad thing that our cat just doesn't come home one day. Yeah. And then and we can't have it just live indoors because of allergy issues and things. So the rabbit's been great. He never leaves the backyard. He anytime a hawk or an eagle comes over, he disappears. So he seems yeah. safe. And he's so big that cats have stopped coming in our backyard because if he sees them, he charges them. So, yeah, we don't get cats in our backyard anymore. It's just the rabbit's territory. We call him Sheriff Bruce. He's out wow. patrolling. So, okay, my next time in Portland, I have to come by your house and actually you meet should. Bruce. Bruce loves meeting new people. Yeah. I've seen enough pictures of Bruce. I, I have to. So, if you want to follow Matt, Matt is on Instagram under Matt Michelados. He's on Twitter under Matt Michelados. I think. Facebook, you're probably also Matt Michelotis. Matt Michelotis. I tried to make it as hard as possible. If you can't spell my name, you're not going to be able to follow me. That's just one of my rules. Yeah. M-I-K-A-L-A-T-O-S. Are there links to it from your website? I think there might yeah, be. Yeah, I think there are actually. Yeah. But it needs so, to be updated as we've established. So, yeah. And for people who are following this, uh, my second cup of coffee, I want to let you know we're now also posting this not only as video on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter and Twitch. But we also um, are putting it out as a podcast, and it's cool. on all the major platforms. It's on Google and Spotify, and it's now on Apple. So if you want to get the audio version of this conversation, you can. I'll post it up to the podcast site later this morning or early this afternoon, and you'll be able to grab it there. Um, but Matt, it's so good to talk with you. I appreciate you taking some time out of your – and this is earlier for you. You're on the West Coast, so we started at 7.30 your time. Yeah, it's now only eight thirty. That's why I had to have my water ready to go. You know, (laughs) we're coming to the end of it. So, (laughs) but thank you, Matt. Anything else you want to say before we're kind of done here? Any last words or parting words you want to give? Mark, I'm so thankful for you and your friendship. Thanks for bringing me in to hang with your your friends here, and uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. Look forward to doing it again soon.
Yeah. Hey, thank you, Matt. Matt also does a podcast. What's the podcast you're doing? <laughs> my my podcast is called The Fascinating Podcast, where my friends and I get together and just talk about whatever we feel like. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> different things, different weeks. Who knows? Okay. So there's no, I mean, that's kind of what this is. Right? This is my segment right? of coffee. There's no specific agenda. I do have some very common themes I run through it all with. No, but. we tend to talk about, um, we do talk a lot about theology, about uh, pop culture. Like we're all big movie geeks and TV geeks uh, and some history stuff. One of our members is a former history prof. So do some of that too. Someone's recommending a, a children's book, Matt, called Bruce the Sheriff Rabbit. <laughs> I'd read that. Yeah, sounds so good. The, I'll, I'll just put, someone made this comment right now here that there's a child book in your future, Matt. It's Bruce the Sheriff Rabbit. I'll say this: everyone who meets Bruce loves him. They're like, this this guy's just amazing. So yeah, I think he he could. If we, we can have Pete the Cat books, Bruce the Rabbit books would be blockbusters. Someone else suggested you get a Beware of Rabbit sign at your gig. <laughs> <laughs> he does charge people sometimes. Like we, I had a guy come in. Our roof was leaking. And he comes in the backyard and out of nowhere, Bruce comes streaking across the yard toward me. He's like, whoa, what's that? I was like, oh, it's just a bunny. Relax. And then, of course, we got someone who chose the Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Yep. So glad glad you and your rabbit have connected with my audience, Matt. It's Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> so Super good to have fun. you here. So I want to thank everybody for joining. Um, it's been good to share the second cup of coffee with you. I hope you have a great rest of the day. I hope that you're able to walk in beauty and may we all learn how to walk in this beauty together. So I have my relatives and have gone that.